Uh, okay, English 256. I sent an email just a little while ago. Did people get that? Um, I think everybody in this room right now is doing, you know, well uh, with the forum. So no, so no big, no big issues on that account. But if you have any questions or concerns about that assignment, please let me know. I'm always very happy to help. Any thoughts or concerns about the forum or anything that's going on? Yeah, uh, I think everybody here is doing well. I appreciate all your posts today, which we'll get into. Okay, okay, so let's start things up. So Eric Gansworth. Um, has anybody read Eric Gansworth before? I just ask because he's kind of a little more popular than most of the poets that we're dealing with. Um, and the reason why is actually something that Sadie mentioned in her post, which is that Gansworth also writes novels. Um, and so maybe you had um, read one or, or run across one. The other thing that makes Eric Gansworth maybe a little more well known is that he's actually from upstate New York and he teaches in upstate New York. So Gansworth is an enrolled member of the Onondaga Nation, which is if you're in Cortland right now, just up the road. Um, or if you're Marissa, like, like right down the street, probably, right? Yeah, so Gansworth is actually an enrolled member of the Onondaga Nation, which is right south of Syracuse, New York, which is right south of Cortland, or right north of Cortland, excuse me. And so there isn't a lot in his poetry that kind of gives away that particular cultural context, which is interesting to think through why. Um, but he is a poet that kind of speaks very, very particularly of uh, this place. So he's an enrolled member of Onondaga. He actually lives out at Tuscarora, which is near Buffalo, and he teaches at Canisius College. Canisius? Canisius? I don't know. Canisius. Whatever it is. He teaches out there. So um, the first thing I wanted to mention before we go into some of the poems themselves, right, is um, something that I think Sadie mentioned, that Anna mentioned, um, somebody else mentioned it too, right? There's something different, at least in a certain way, um, about Gansworth's poems relative to the two other poets that we've read so far this week. Can anybody talk through that a little bit? Anybody mention that on the post or somebody else? The differences that you perceive in Gansworth's poetry relative to Da or to Westerman. I said that they were longer, and then I also noticed that, like, the other two poets kind of had things that related more to their lives, where I felt Gainsworth kind of said a lot about the idea of the Indian and um, the actual Indian. Okay, good. Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things to kind of break out there. Is, um, they're definitely longer. A lot of these are definitely longer. They also seem in a certain way, and kind of Sadie mentioned this too, they also seem in a certain way to be more um, interested, at least certain of the poems seem more interested in telling a story. Like there's a lot more like you and me and like poems about people in a very particular way, right? So that's kind of interesting and distinctive. And it might have to do with the fact that Gansworth is also a novelist. Maybe that's part of why he's more interested in kind of like telling stories as opposed to thinking more abstractly. But I think Kieran, you also are right to say that some of these poems of Gansworth are, are very interested, like less in the personal and more in the idea 
right? He's a little more kind of academic in certain ways. It actually makes sense given that he teaches at a college, right? That some of these poems are actually quite academic because they're working through ideas that we kind of talk about in class. So like repatriation, for example, that poem is not particularly personal. It's, it's, an about, it's about an idea or a practice or um, the Curtis poem, right? Which we'll talk about today. That's about the idea of the Indian to go to Kieran's point and to kind of um, to jump on Marissa's post as well, which we'll get to, right? So yeah, that's one big and prominent distinction. He's working with ideas more and abstractions, but I would also say too, and this is something that Anna brought up in her post, right? I would also say too, that when Gansworth talks about personal histories or experiences, it seems more intimate to me. It seems more like about him in a very particular way. I don't know, Anna, do you want to mention anything about that? Is there anything to add to that idea that like it seems more personal? Um, yeah, I definitely feel like in some of the poems, the one about his grandparents and the one where he's in like the mall, he's definitely talking about like himself and his experiences. Um, and I feel like in the other authors that we read this week, like they weren't as personal to that extent. Like they were personal about like how their families like went through violences and stuff, but not necessarily like very specific experiences like that. Yeah, this is a great point. Thank you, Anna. I think this is a really nice way to kind of split the difference between what we're talking about is that Gansworth and these other poets that we've read so far this week, they're all talking about personal experiences, but with Gansworth, it seems as if he's really digging into, in a certain respect, the nitty gritty, right? He's talking about his experiences with poverty in uh, Half-Life of the Cardiopulmonary Function, or he's talking about like the relationship that his grandfather and grandmother have and how they met. And there's not necessarily always in Gansworth that move to, to universalize or to abstract. He's just kind of laying in that personal story in a way that Westerman and Da don't. Like if you remember like, for instance, the last poem that we read of Westerman's that we didn't really bring up in class if you listened in or if you were here, right? That was a personal story. It was about like her having a health problem and like she was a teacher and all of these things and about her days as a teacher, but like it was always reaching toward an abstraction, right? It was always reaching toward a generality. Whereas Gansworth in some respects in these personal poems isn't kind of doing that. He's talking about like his sister and his brother-in-law, and he's talking about like using a lacrosse stick, which is like a Native American sport. He's talking about using a lacrosse stick to fend off rats, and that's kind of indicative of his socioeconomic position, stuff like that. So I like to kind of begin with these broad, broad kind of painting with a broad brush and thinking about how these poets and poems are different so that we can kind of orient ourselves more particularly to some of the details. So I guess I want to start with one in particular. I'm going to share my screen and we're going to go through at least a couple of them and talk through them and talk about your posts about them, which were, were strong today. So thank you. So I'm going to bring up a screen and you could tell me, uh, give me a thumbs up or something. You tell me if you can see it. Oh, I love the thumbs up. It makes me feel so good. Technologies are working for us. So I want to start with speaking through our nation's teeth. If you were here on Wednesday or you listened in, you will recall that on Wednesday, as we talked through the poet Gwen Nell Westerman's poetry, we actually talked a lot 
about the presence and the purpose of the use of native language in these poems. And we talked on Wednesday about how the use of native language kind of cuts both ways for us as generally speaking settler readers, because of course we don't know by and large what the native language is saying, right? We don't understand the words. And so um, what we said on Wednesday, and actually Brianna got us here a little bit on Wednesday uh, among some other folks, what we were saying on Wednesday is that on one hand, like it's a confuse, it's confusing these inclusions, but that confusion can do two things. That confusion can bring us in, right? That confusion can, can ask, can basically compel us to think more about what's being said. Maybe we even type some of these words into Google and like try and figure out what they mean, which people did on Wednesday, which was cool, right? So that confusion can occasion or compel curiosity, which brings us into the poem. But the confusion can also occasion or compel a distancing, right? So what we said on Wednesday was that if we're not, if like we're confused, we might be pulled in, but we could also, if we're confused, be kind of pressed away, right? The idea being that like the poet is constructing a wall between us and the poem. The poet is saying like, there are things that you are not going to be able to know, right? As a settler reader who doesn't understand the native language. There are things that you are not going to be able to know and that I am not going to tell you, right? And that's kind of a powerful move on the part of the poet. It's a very strategic and powerful one. So I want to think through that a little bit um, as we talk more generally about language, native language in, in this poem and about the intimacy of the poem too. And I want to get to Brendan's point on the post about pronouns and the use of pronouns in this poem. That's a really interesting point as well. So let me read this and we'll talk about it. Speaking through our nation's teeth. When you see me for the first time at a powwow or social across the circle we dance, in which language and worldview do you form your first impression? The one you were taught in school, memorizing epics and heroes of other people, diagramming sentences with the precision of a surgeon, driving modifiers and prepositional phrases beneath the horizon, like roots or dead relatives or both? Or the ones you were taught hiding beneath your mother's dining room table where she and her generation forgot you were there and spoke of the giant turtle, the twins, the grandmother moon and said, Jeus e acre altness to one another, laughing without fear of you, learning and growing this voice they thought would only keep you behind. I listen. For Chiwant, Skeno, Shekan, Guatse, Henshi, Estanco, Bojo, Dale, Osio, ready to bear these teeth in a smile where we find ourselves and each other. Okay, so I want to model again as we go through these poems, just like I've been trying to do every day this week and will continue to do, looking forward to that poem analysis paper that you have due on November 2nd. I want to try and model how we approach a poem, how we begin to understand what it means and what it's saying, right? So the first thing we want to do, right, is just think about the situation of the poem, literally what's on the page. What is the situation of this poem? What's it describing? What story is being told? Literally, don't go to interpretation yet. You guys are so chomping at the bit sometimes to tell me about what it means. Just tell me what it says. 
What's the situation of the poem? Um, he's basically asking the reader, like, what are, what are their first impressions? What are they learning about um, natives? And uh, at least in the first two stanzas. Maybe, but I think, may, maybe, but that, that centers around the question of who is you and who is me? Okay, is the poet addressing you as in the reader? Right, and that opens up an interpretive question for us because the you could be the reader, right, Austin? Or the you could be somebody else. So what's the situation of the poem? What's literally the place that the poem is occurring in? When you see me for the first time at a powwow or social across the circle, we dance. So me is the poet, of course, or the speaker, but you could also be the person across the circle in the dance and not necessarily the reader. So the poem could also be addressing some abstract you that is not the reader. If the, if the poem is addressing a you that is not the reader, who is that you? What do we know about that you? The poem tells us a couple of things about that you. What do we know about that, that you, if it's not the reader? Like what characteristics have been added to us about who this you is? What do we know about the you? They've never met the um, poet before. Okay, good. Yeah, absolutely. For the first time, right? So we're standing across from one another in a gymnasium or whatever in the middle of a dance and we lock eyes, right? This is the kind of, this is the, the meet cute, right? This is like the love at first sight kind of thing, right? This poem is about meeting somebody who you kind of want to get to know across a crowded room. Right. And Austin, like that's not to kind of discount the idea that the poem can also be an address to the reader because the, the reader can be the person that the poet wants to get to know. Right. So that's not to discount that interpretation, but, but to stick on this idea that the you is another person. Right. The poet or the speaker is has spied another person across a crowded room in the midst of a dance and the speaker asks that person a question. The question is in which language and worldview do you form your first impression of me, the speaker? What are the two options? The two languages or worldviews, what are the options? Like the settler and like the Native American one. Yeah, so the Marissa, exactly right, right? In the second stanza, the option, the language, or the worldview is the one that you're taught in school, okay? The second option, which is in the third stanza, is the language or worldview that you're taught hiding beneath your mother's dining room table. As you're listening to your elders tell native stories and use native languages, okay? Does that make sense? That's the scenario, that's the situation. And I think Kieran, you kind of nicely talk about this in your post, right? Where you say, there's two options here. The options that you draw are something like knowledge and something like values. You wanna talk a little bit more about that? I mean, 
that's kind of an interesting way of thinking about these two things. So I don't remember exactly what I said, but it was something along the lines of like, um, in school, you're taught one thing, like I was taught the pilgrims and the Indians got along and like, we celebrated that for Thanksgiving. Um, and then like my family, it was kind of like their values. So when I look at something or learn something now, um, it's like, do I base it off of the knowledge I gained from my family or the knowledge I gained from school? So it's like, kind of one or the other and it can be a mix of both but normally one outweighs the other one so you're solely basing it off of one value or piece of knowledge you gain from one area of your life yeah perfect and i love the kind of complication you brought into that that even went beyond your post which is that in both of these stanzas right in the second and third stanza these are both types of knowledge Right? It's not as if one is knowledge and one is values, but they're both knowledge and they're both values. They're both different types, right? And so in the second stanza, the poet is asking the person across the room, do you form your first impression through your book learning, the stuff you gain in school? In the third stanza, the poet is asking the person across the room, do you form your first impression through essentially what you learn when you're with your family, something we might call street smarts or something like that, right? Like the distinction here is between what you learn in the classroom and what you learn a lot across the dinner table or around the dinner table. And the poet is asking the person across the room, when you see me, when we lock eyes across this crowded room, do you think about me in English through a settler lens or do you think about me in your native language? Right. So that's kind of the scenario or situation of the poem. Right. Do you think about me in this way or do you think about me in another? Right. When you see me for the first time, in which language and worldview do you form your first impression? It's a question. Right. The question isn't answered, but the last stanza gets us to a particular place and makes us think a particular thing about the poem and about the poet's perspective. Anybody look up any of these native words? You didn't need to, it wasn't expected or asked of you, but did anybody look up any of these native words? Would it surprise you to know that all of these native words are basically native words for hello? All right, so if I told you that like, uh, scanon is Mohawk for hello, or Bojo is, Mo is Anishinaabeg, uh, for hello, right, or others, um, Choctaw, CEO, I believe is Choctaw. If I told you that all of these words are words for hello, how does that change your interpretation or understanding of this last stanza? What is the poet or the speaker listening for? like where people are from. Yeah, so in one respect, the poet or the speaker is listening for like, what native language do you use, which can kind of point us toward where you're from and in many respects, who you are, right? Absolutely. More than that though, uh, also like the poet is listening for the speaker saying hello in a native language in order to understand that like there's a, there's a bond 
right? There's a bond between these two people and the bond is kind of native identity that is formed and preserved at the kitchen table or underneath it, right? So when the poet says, I listen, and then for all of these different words that mean hello or greetings, right? And then the poet says, ready to bear these teeth, stop, new line, in a smile where we find ourselves and each other. What do those last couple of lines mean? And how does the form of those lines and how they're broken up on the page, how does that kind of reinforce or complicate our sense of the meaning of the poem? I listen for hello, for a greeting in a native language, ready to bear these teeth in a smile where we find ourselves and each other. When, when, um, we're thinking it, when I, when I first heard ready to bear these teeth, I kind of, that kind of gave me a negative, like, uh, a negative connotation, like, um, I don't know if like barely see like, like, like an animal, like something you'd be threatened by. And then, it, but then, so to me, it, and then it goes into in a smile and it's obviously putting them at ease. So I just feel like it's, um, it's like just to show like a wall's going down, like just give you that sense, I guess, at the end. Yeah, totally awesome. Do people agree with that or see how that's working there? Right? That poetic technique where you run the sense of one line onto another without a stop is called enjambment. It's not necessary that you kind of know what the technique is called, but if you're able to notice that that line, ready to bear these teeth, runs onto the next without a stop, you'll notice that, as Austin is saying, what happens is our sense of that line changes as we move to the next. Because Austin, I think you're entirely right. We usually associate bearing teeth with violence or with threat or with danger, right? A dog bears its teeth to you, not to smile at you, but to let you know that it's about to bite your fucking head off, right? Or like we're coming up on Halloween, right? We have the vampire bearing its teeth to suck your blood, right? Not to like give you a, sloppy kiss or something, right? Bearing of teeth is a danger, it's a threat. And so there were poised at a knife's edge at the end of that line. This is what Austin is talking through. We're poised at a knife's edge at the end of that line where there's like two options. Things could go well or things could go poorly. He's listening, the poet or the speaker is listening for that hello and as they begin to listen for that hello in that native language, he begins to get ready for both of the options, to bear the teeth that will bite or to bear the teeth that will smile. And what happens is he bears the teeth that will smile because he hears that native language. And because he hears that native language, he smiles and they find themselves and each other. They have a connection there. They have a connection through their mutual shared heritage as native people, right? Does that make sense? Uh, that's, I'm just trying to model for you again, the steps that we take to begin to understand how to read a poem, right? Notice that we began by thinking through what the situation of the poem was. Where is it occurring? What's going on? What's the question that's being asked? What's the theme that's being raised? But we don't stop there, right? We get to a better sense of those questions by digging more deeply into the language and the form of the poem. 
right? So when we talk about how a line stops or a line ends and then the sense runs on to the next, and we're poised at a knife edge there as readers, just like the speaker is poised at a knife edge, that's a moment where you're connecting the form and language and structure of the poem to the meaning and content of the poem. And that's exactly what I want you guys to be doing in the poem analysis paper, is connecting those two ideas. When you guys are writing on the forum, which is fair enough, because it's a pretty informal context, but when you guys are writing on the forum, by and large, especially the replies, but some of the posts too, by and large, you're just talking about one or the other. Usually, you guys are mostly talking about the meaning and the content, what the poem is saying, not how the poem is working, right? So when you guys are using quotations from the poems, you're mostly using quotations to exemplify what the poem is saying. But I want you guys to start thinking about using quotations in order to demonstrate how the poem is working. Okay, and again, this is a more important thing to do in the paper than in the forum, but it would be a good idea, and I'm not necessarily speaking to like the 10 of you in here, but just the class in general, be a good idea to start practicing that idea, right? To start thinking about using the evidence from the poem to demonstrate how it's working as opposed to just saying what it's saying. Um, I want to move on to another poem, but I actually wanted to stick on this for a second. Brendan, um, you mentioned in your post that a lot of these poems kind of do interesting things with pronouns. And that is really kind of readily apparent to me in this poem too. Do you want to mention something about that? Um, yeah, I kind of like when I first like even just the first line, like it's kind of when you see me, like I, I kind of feel like the Eric Gansworth is kind of given a like native versus settler kind of theme or like overlying theme to these poems. So you're seeing in the kind of indeterminate identities of the pronouns, the you and the me, the potential for a kind of conflict between settlers and natives. Now, having said that, we, once we better understand the situation of the poem, we realize that the me is probably the speaker and the you is probably another native person across the dance floor, right? And so, what the pronouns do is they introduce a measure of ambiguity or indeterminacy that makes us think a little bit more about who is speaking to whom in a poem like this. So that's one really important effect of the poem is they introduce an ambiguity that we have to kind of deal with and figure out. The other thing that I want to note about the use of pronouns in this poem is, Brendan, as you're mentioning, that first line is really distinctive and notable because of the pronouns, right? You and me, right? Um, no stable identities, no kind of like proper names, but just you and me. And then over the course, the vast majority of the poem, it's just you, right? You, 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 the speaker, the me, talking to the you, asking a question of the you, right? Only at the end, only after that hello, that greeting has been exchanged, do we move Basically, for the first time, there's one other example in the beginning in the first stanza, but only at the end do we move in a more concerted way away from you and me across a crowded room to a we, right? You and me 
equals we is that a boy band song that's got to be a boy band song back in the day that's got to be a backstreet boy no that's you plus me equals us you guys know that song no this is before your time oh my gosh in sync and the backstreet boys you plus me equals us or maybe that was 98 degrees i don't know that was a, maybe a generation before your time but the idea here is that you plus me equals we right and it, this is kind of um demonstrated over the course of the poem because we have the you, the me talking to the you over and over and over and over again in this poem, but the poem ends with a we, right? We find ourselves and each other, right? And so there's a coming together in that last stanza that is kind of exemplified or demonstrated by the shift in pronouns. Again, just modeling for you how you come to an understanding of the poem that's nuanced and rich and complicated by looking at the language. Questions about that? All right. Um, let's go to another one. Yeah. Snagging the eye from Curtis. I like this one. And I brought up just a Curtis photo to kind of orient ourselves to exactly what Gansworth is talking about here, but this is something that we've mentioned in the past, right? When we were talking about Thomas King's book, he mentioned Edward Sheriff Curtis quite a bit. And he mentioned Edward Sheriff Curtis in the context of thinking about the idea of the Indian as opposed to actually existing Indians. And this is essentially what Gansworth is talking about in this poem. So I'm gonna read it and Marissa had some good things to say about it um, uh, as well as some others. So I'll just ask you to kind of comment on it after I go through it. Again, this is another poem. Gansworth, he's, I, I dare say he's a bit thirsty. He's always talking about other people. He's always, he was always looking at somebody else and being like, hey, can we connect, right? He's a, he's, a, he's a bit thirsty here. And I say that advisedly knowing that I'm recording this and like this could be sent around. But like there's, his, his poems are always about like finding another person and connecting. It's about connection. There's an intimacy to them. <laughs> the first time I saw you, I noticed immediately that your tones were brown, but not sepia, that there were no herds of headless buffalo dotting the landscape behind you, no questionable blanket mantled across your shoulders, no sun perpetually setting on the mesas and plateaus, heaving themselves around you in authenticity, that you were not a daguerreotype, a tintype, a stereotype, a blood type, I plus, I positive potentially. Percentages marked by the yardstick of a photographer nearly convincing us a century ago we were ghosts trapped within his snapping shutter, who was unaware we could learn where the F stopped and how the light metered out the ways we knew ourselves to be and not to be, no question. Okay, so again, let's kind of move through this poem and think about the situation and what it's doing. The first time I saw you, I noticed immediately. So what does the speaker notice about this person? There's a kind of romance to it, essentially, right? A little bit, so it's, you know, but the, the speaker is noticing another person. What does the speaker notice about that other person? Literally. Yeah, Marissa, you said her color or his color? 
right? Yeah, that your tones were brown, but not sepia or sepia. What does that mean, given what we know about Curtis? and his photographs. Curtis used sepia and like his, uh, as like a filter and his photos of Native Americans. So the, uh, like the narrator is noticing like a Native American outside of the sepia filter, like a real person. Yeah, and what does the sepia filter do to the subject of the, of the image? of this image or of any of them? It's supposed to look antique, sort of. Right, Marissa, it's supposed to place, as we've talked about in class so many times, it's supposed to place the native subject of the image in this kind of inescapable past, right? So when the speaker says, I noticed that your tones were brown, but not sepia, what he's saying is that I noticed that you're native, but that you're not placed in this inescapable past, that you're not an antique that you're a real person, right? And then that sepia point gets reinforced over and over again by other things that the speaker says that should put us in mind of the type of photos that Edward Curtis was taking. So no, no, not only is the, the person the speaker is speaking to um, not sepia, but that there were no herds of headless buffalo dotting the landscape behind you. There were no questionable blankets mantled around your shoulders this is a good image of a, a questionable blanket mantled around a shoulder right here on the slide, right? No sun perpetually setting on the mesas and plateaus, heaving themselves around you in authenticity. So what is the speaker saying here? Just to reinforce the point that Marissa made, the, the person that the speaker is talking to is not sepia, not an antique. What do these other ideas um, reinforce about that point? that um, this person doesn't fit like the box of all those Native American stereotypes. Yeah, that this person is not the idea of the Indian, but is in fact an actually existing one, right? These are all, as Austin is telling us, stereotypes about Native American people that actually come out of Curtis's images, right? The buffalo, right? Or the blanket, or the idea of the sun setting behind the Western landscape, right? All of these things are quote unquote authentic, although we know, having read King, that the idea of authenticity is a trap, right? Quote unquote authentic things are what stick native people into a box that they can't get out of. And so what the speaker is saying here is I noticed you, and this is why I think it's a bit thirsty, the speaker is saying like, I noticed you for who you are right? As opposed to, I noticed you because you are in some way, like, aligning with stereotypes about Native people, right? So the speaker says, you were not a daguerreotype or a tintype. Marissa, what are those? They're like uh, photograph types. Yeah, they're types of photos, like photographic technologies, right? Specifically 19th century ones, ones that um, Curtis would have used not a stereotype, right? And not a blood type. Marissa, what, do you, what did you make of that, that idea that the speaker notices that this person is not a blood type? Um, historically, like blood quantum was used uh, to like kind of separate Native Americans. And so he used uh, like I positive, which I took as like Indian positive. 
Yeah, so like you are not just reducible to your image in a photograph. You are not reducible just to your blood type, which would tell you whether you are an authentic Indian or not. None of those things matter, the speaker says, right? Those things are percentages marked by the yardstick of a photographer that nearly convinced us a century ago we were ghosts trapped within his snapping shutter. What is that, those last couple of lines? That we were ghosts trapped within his snapping shutters. Anybody um, have a context for those lines? No. In the 19th century, it was believed, or like the stereotype was, that Native people believed that when a picture was taken of them, it captured their soul. It literally took their soul from them because it, it, that, that was the idea, right? But that's a stereotype. That's something that like Native people by and large actually didn't believe, but that other people placed upon them as a belief to kind of other them or to suggest that they were exotic or mystical, right? And then the last paragraph is just more about how like um, this photographer, Curtis, is intending to keep native people in the past and to place them in a box to think about native people as people who are unaware that they could learn where the F stopped. What does that mean? Anybody, anybody take like a photo class in high school? Any creative types? Damn, because I don't know him well enough to say exactly what it is, but the f-stop is a kind of um, a thing that you can use to change a feature on a camera, right? It's about the amount of exposure and light that you let into a camera. So it's about taking photographs, right? Who is unaware we could learn where the f-stopped, how the light metered out the ways we knew ourselves to be and not to be, no question. Okay, so there's a reference to photography in the last stanza, that makes sense, the F stopped, or a light meter, that's another reference to photography, right? If you have ever gotten your portrait taken or something, sometimes the photographer will have a little light meter that they hold up to tell you how much light is in the frame. What about this last reference though? How the light metered out the ways we knew ourselves to be and not to be, no question. All right, we're in an English classroom, what's that referencing? Somebody come through with what Hamlet. that what's that Shakespeare and Hamlet yeah right it's referencing the very famous Hamlet soliloquy to be or not to be right anybody can anybody recite that bit, that bit of the soliloquy come on I used to be able to my teacher made us memorize the whole 14 lines yeah, that's right. but you don't have it anymore in I ask because sometimes that's the case, right? Which is actually really important for where I want to go with understanding why this is here, right? But the, the lines are like, to be or not to be, that is the question, whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against the sea of troubles and by opposing end them, right? And then going on from there. And I did read that off. I did not memorize them. Um, so to be or not to be, it's a, it's a reference from Shakespeare. Why would Gansworth at the end of this poem make such a clear reference to Shakespeare, to be or not to be, that is the question, but to say to be and not to be, no question. What the speaker is saying is that Native people can learn to know themselves and to be 
and not to be without question, right? So he's turning the Shakespeare quote on its head and making a claim for um, the strength and power and clarity of native identity, right? That like native people can be native people outside of this idea of the Indian. That's the argument that's being made, right? Is that native people can be real, actually existing as opposed to just ideas or stereotypes. But why would you reference Shakespeare? Why reference Shakespeare here? How does that, how does that reinforce the point that the speaker is making? or that Gansworth is making. Anna, why does your teacher make you memorize, which is terrible, why does your teacher make you memorize 14 lines of Shakespeare? Um, I think it was to really, so we looked at it more and really understood what each line was saying. Okay, yeah, for sure. Like, that's the good pedagogical reason. But, but I guess what I'm asking is, like, why Shakespeare? Why not, like, uh, Eric Gansworth? Um, well, because Shakespeare is, like, so, uh, like, iconic, I guess, in, like, the literature world. So I don't really know how that correlates to that. Well, I'm, I'm going to make the connection, right? But I want to get to this idea, right? You're totally right. One of the reasons why our teachers make us memorize Shakespeare and don't make us memorize like J.K. Rowling or something is because Shakespeare is like the paragon avatar of like high Western culture, right? Shakespeare is like the most exalted example of Western literary culture, okay, for better, for worse, right? Everyone knows who Shakespeare is and to be or not to be, all of you, even if you didn't know exactly where that reference was from, you had it jostling around in your brain, right? You've all heard that phrase, to be or not to be, right? Even if you don't know exactly where it's from, you've heard the phrase, right? And so why would Gansworth quote, right, or reference Shakespeare at the end of a poem that's about how native people can live their lives and be who they are outside of the idea of an authentic or stereotypical native. Why Shakespeare at the end of a poem about native identity that isn't reducible to stereotypes or photographs. I guess one idea might be that um, it goes to show like they don't need Western civilization and Western like ideology to again to like have an identity like um, that they can understand it. I, I don't know what I'm saying. But um, I guess like they, they're rejecting that they don't need it to like. I don't think they need it. Austin, I don't think there's a, I don't think a claim is being, being made here for whether they need it or not. But the question I'm asking is why include it, right? If this poem is about the idea that native people are who they are without all of the stereotypes, without the blankets, without the mesas, without the buffalo, right? That native people basically just exist in present times 
without all of those stereotypes, why quote Shakespeare at the end? How does quoting Shakespeare at the end and kind of playing around with it reinforce that point? Like Austin, you're right that the speaker does kind of reject it because instead of saying to be or not to be, he says to be and not to be. And instead of saying that is the question, he says there's no question. Right, so he is rejecting the premises. He's turning the quote around on itself. So that's a good point, but I'm get, I guess I'm asking a simpler one. Why quote Shakespeare at all in a poem about Indian identity um, that is irreducible to stereotype? Why not quote a native author? Would, would an authentic Indian with the blanket and the buffalo and the headdress and the sepia tones, would an authentic Indian know Shakespeare? No, you're shaking your head, right? Why not? Because it doesn't align with the stereotype, right? You can't be a savage and know Shakespeare Shakespeare is the most exalted cultural form in the Western world. So you can't be a savage Indian and know Shakespeare. So why is this native speaker quoting Shakespeare at the end or referencing Shakespeare? I think this is a simpler idea than you guys are trying to think it through. Why, if the idea here is that you can be native without being this authentic stereotypical native identity, what the speaker's doing by referencing Shakespeare at the end is saying like, yeah, you can be a native person and be able to quote and reference Shakespeare, right? You can be a native person that does not kind of simply fit into the mold of the stereotype or fall into the trap of the authentic, right? And basically what he's doing is he's taking this exalted Western form and saying, this fits perfectly with native identity as opposed to the type of native identity that Edward Curtis wants to have us believe is true, right? Shakespeare fits perfectly with native identity. It's not strange at all that somebody like Gansworth would quote Shakespeare because Gansworth is not a native person who is sepia-toned and has a blanket over his shoulders and um, sits around with buffalo hides, right? Gansworth is a uh, inauthentic native person and he's all the better for it because that means he's a real actually existing native person. Does that make sense? Yeah, simpler than you thought I was asking, right? It's just kind of really clear idea there. But again, just to wrap up in our last minute here, what I'm trying to model for you once more, I gotta pause this, share. What I'm trying to model for you once more, right? Is this idea that we get to a kind of deep, complicated, nuanced sense of what these poems are doing and what they mean when we take the time to dig into that detail and think to ourselves, okay, why Shakespeare right there, 
Because you can't come to that idea that we end with without knowing that there's a detail in that language and in the form of the poem that gets us to that meaning. Cool? All right, go cuddle up with a blanket and uh, have a good weekend. Bye. Thanks, everybody. I'll stick around if anybody's got questions.